0: of us have been speaking and have been asked to speak, and this morning uh, we're going to look at a topic that's a little bit heady, but also a little bit hearty. It's a little bit cerebral, maybe, is a good way of putting it, but its implications impact our heart and uh, ultimately how we understand reality and therefore how we live our lives. So it's an important topic to talk about. We want to talk about God And you're thinking, wow, Steve, big reveal. We talk about God every Sunday. Right, that's kind of what the point of church is. But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about how we perceive God. How do we understand God to be in terms of his character, who he is or who she is? Uh, What is God like? And therefore, how does God act or how does God not act in this world? And that's uh, the big question we're going to explore this morning. And so like I said, it's a little bit heady and I get it, it's summertime. You're like, okay, the university's out, college is out, school is out. I'm not really in a head space to think about heady, you know, conceptual ideas. But bear with me, because like I said, I think this is an important topic to discuss. And I don't think it's so hard that we can't wrap our heads around this. We're going to... Um, dive into this a little bit and there's always time for questions and after the service if you have questions or concerns you can talk to Pastor Keith he's still around <laughs> or myself or any of the leaders anyway um, but this is a term that we use to describe uh, how we perceive God is the word construct how many people have heard that word construct before? yeah a couple of us? okay I asked uh, Dr. Google what construct means he's a very authoritative source on these type of things And Dr. Google says that a construct is an idea or a theory containing various conceptual elements, typically one considered to be subjective and not based on empirical evidence. Well, that's a big lofty definition. But in other words, it's the picture that you form in your head of something that you can't experience tangibly. You can't experience directly. You can't touch it or, or feel it or see it. And so you come up with pictures in your head. So, of course, God is a construct. We come up with a construct of God in our heads. And so this morning and next Sunday as well, we're going to be talking about this idea, this construct of God that we have in our minds. And there's two sort of premises or sort of principles that we want to begin and um, kind of agree upon. And the first is that constructs are impossible to avoid. We all have them. There isn't a a perfect construct that 100% gets it right especially when we talk about God. And the other thing is that a bad construct will bring destruction, and uh, particularly destruction of your faith, uh, but also relationships and perhaps even your life. And so we're going to talk about that as well. Um, but a quick example to illustrate the first one. How many of you, uh, raise your hand, how many of you have ever experienced a Category 5 hurricane? I don't just mean like you saw it on the news, but you actually lived through it. Sam? Sam? Oh, I thought you Anyone here? No? Okay, great. So then this experiment, this little activity, we'll, we'll, be, we'll all be able to participate. I know Brent has probably come the closest. What was Ivan for? Oh, so, okay, Brent, you can't do this exercise then. Oh, you are evacuated. Okay, so he didn't actually endure it. He was in uh, the Caymans when Hurricane Ivan came, and he's got some crazy stories about that, but they escaped it. Okay, that's okay. All of us can take part in this exercise. Um, I want you to close your eyes, and uh, <clears throat> Category 5 hurricanes now are the strongest hurricanes that uh, exist. And uh, they're, ca- they're technically defined as having sustained winds of 252 kilometers an hour. So that's essentially a tornado that uh, happens over the period of a couple of days. So tornado... Uh, It's around those kind of speeds, uh, wind speeds, and they touch down for like six seconds. They decimate everything in their path, and then they disappear. So hurricane, the Category 5 hurricane, will be like that, but instead of touching down and disappearing, it'll stay over land for days and days sometimes. Incredible force, incredible power. Add to that that the low-pressure system that a hurricane brings... Uh, you have, therefore, all this water level that's rising. And so you have huge flooding, you have all sorts of water problems. Now, painted that little bit of a picture in your head. Now, you, with your eyes closed, are sitting in a coastal resort in Mexico, and a Category 5 hurricane comes, and you did not evacuate, and now you have to experience it. So, with your eyes closed, I'm asking you this question. Picture form a picture an image in your mind of what that experience is like going through a category 5 hurricane what are the sounds you're hearing what are the feelings you have like the what are you feeling around you what are some of the experiences? Feel free now, close, open your eyes. Oh, I'll give you a couple seconds to just kind of picture that because I think we need to take a few seconds. And then, as something comes to your mind, shout it out. What are some of the things that you feel, some of the things that are happening in that moment in that resort in Mexico as you're experiencing a Category 5 hurricane? Go ahead. Anyone? Wind. Wind. Powerful wind. I, um, I remember hearing a story when we lived uh, down in the Bahamas years ago of people who experienced Category 5. Many people described it as a train going, running right outside their, uh, their window or their door oh, just constantly all through the night. Just a loud train right outside. That's crazy. What else? Where do I hide? Where do I hide? So this sense of panic. I got to do something. I got to go. I got to protect myself. Right. What else? Sorry? Noise, great noise, absolutely, just perpetual noise. Yes, in the back. Lots of debris banging against the walls of your hotel and not knowing what the next thing is that's going to hit. Terror, Terror. that's the sense you're feeling, absolutely. Am I going to live through this? Right. Exhaustion, Exhaustion. right. How much longer is this storm going to last? Can we bear it any more? And so you've got howling winds, you've got panic, you've got windows crashing maybe, you've got walls, things blowing up against walls, this uncertainty, shaking rooms. Now, notice that there are similarities in some of our descriptions here, but that no one has said the exact same thing. Nobody has the exact same picture of what a Category 5 hurricane experience is like. So, Who's right? And who's wrong? Now, this isn't a perfect analogy about how we think of God, but uh, mainly because we've all seen news coverage of Category 5 hurricanes. So we can have a pretty good visual image of what that might look like based on our experience of um, watching TV, watching the news. Maybe we've talked to people who have experienced category five hurricanes and they've painted a picture that we've adopted. Maybe we've observed different things. Um, We've read about them, we've studied them. So Some of us might have a more informed idea. Some of us might be a little bit off, Um, but that's that's, that's fine. And so because of these sort of shared arm's length experiences or conversations, observations um, and so forth, we might find overlaps and similarities, but ultimately, our constructs are a reflection of how we've assembled what an intangible experience might look like in our minds. Our constructs are a reflection of how we've assembled, so how we put together these reality that we can't experience or that we haven't experienced. And of course, until we've actually gone through it, all we can do is create that mental picture. Now, I'm not sure if you believe this or not, but this is actually how we understand God as well. Ultimately, our perception of God is based on a few things. And as Christians, we would say, first and foremost, we would hope it would be the Holy Spirit. But then on top of that, it's our subjective experiences. It's our interactions with one another. It's our understanding of how we read Scripture. Our personal benefit and advantage that we have as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But we perceive God with how God is going to benefit us a little bit. Of experience. Now, some ideas that we have of God are true, and some are patently false. How we gauge the truthiness of a construct of God, it's a bit of a complex question. And we don't want to venture down that road this morning because it's going to sort of distract us from our focus. And like I said, this is a pretty heady concept to even discuss and to wrap our heads around. So don't, don't get lost in that. That's fine. It's summertime. No one wants to be thinking about these kind of ideas. I get that. Next week, we're going to look into how to gauge. Keep this in mind, so you'll come back next week. How to gauge our perception of God through Christian lens. That's, that's next week. But you think about that. We've got over 35,000 Christian denominations in the world today. 35,000 active Christian denominations. And if you think about, each one of those has a particular view of God that they believe is right. So even through a Christian lens, you can see the challenge that we have uh, in getting to a correct understanding of God. Right? You can appreciate that, I hope. Uh, You can see that a Christian lens is challenging. That's okay. We're still going to try and I think we can get some ground and and maybe we don't all have to agree on the exact same thing, but I think there's going to be consensus, I hope. Um, And we're going to look at that next week. But, Anyway, we all make up a picture of how we understand God in our heads. And we can't escape that. In fact, if you think about God, by definition, he is completely other, which means he is completely outside of our experience. He is eternal. We are temporal. He exists beyond the confines of space and time. We are limited in that, and because of that, he exists beyond the scope of language. And you and I are limited, and we communicate, and all of our reality exists within the limits of language. As we use the word "ineffable" to describe God. He's too great, or he's ex- too extreme, to be expressed or described in you know feeble human language. We just, there are no words to describe who God is and what God's like. And so we try to use finite language to describe the infinite, and when we do that, we will be woefully inadequate. Of course, there is hope here. Uh, Again, but I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, so we'll just keep on this track for now. But we cannot avoid forming ideas of God that inevitably are not going to line up with his or her reality. And what's more, depending on our own experience and our own inclinations, our own observations, some of us are going to end up emphasizing God as uh, more of one attribute than the other. Some of us say, oh no, God's so gracious. But others say, yeah, but God's so wrathful. And others say, God is, you know, he's like a doting grandfather who looks at his grandkids and they can do no wrong. And others say, yeah, but God is like a judge who's looking down on us and is always upset with us because we are just not good enough. Right? It, it depends what lens, what emphasis we're going to place on God. Um, and that, of course, leads us to our second point, which is that if you have a bad construct of God, if you have a bad picture of God in your mind that you live with, that directs your day-to-day steps in your everyday life, that bad construct can have some pretty destructive consequences. Some very destructive consequences, especially in regard to our faith, but as well as our life, our relationships, our spiritual paths. Basically, everything that matters hinges on how we see and understand God. Do you believe that? So you want to get it as right as you can, I would think, which is, should be a lifelong goal. How we understand God directly informs how we live our lives. How we understand God directly informs how we live our lives. Let me say that one more time. How we understand God directly informs how we live our lives, how we serve others, how we pray. How do we approach prayer? How do we hope? And ultimately, how we love one another or how we withhold love from one another. Let me say this again. There is... A direct correlation with the picture of God that we have in our minds and our day to day lives of how we take in reality, of how we treat others, and how we treat ourselves. All of that matters. And all that stems from our fundamental understanding of what is God like? Who is this divine being? that we worship. I'll never forget a conversation I had a few years back um, with an older friend whose child had died in his 20s. His child died in his 20s, and in um, a conversation I had with this individual, she confided in me, she said, Stephen, I can't help but shake the feeling that God... Is punishing me by taking my son, he's punishing me for having premarital sex 25 years ago. That speaks volumes about how that individual sees God, doesn't it? I can't help but think of how God is punishing me because 25 years ago I had premarital sex and today my son is dead. Is God like that? Is that the construct of God that's in your head? Um, I had a friend in high school who I had the privilege of leading to Christ, and not too long ago, I was chatting with him, um, sort of online a little bit, and just sort of observing his life, and he said to me flatly, Steve, God isn't who I thought he would be. He's not who I thought he would be. I had this image of him in my mind that you helped create when I was a teen, And 15, 20 years later, he's not who I thought he would be. And he's sort of ashamed about it because of some of the life choices he's made as a result of not following God anymore. Sort of turned his back on him altogether. Because he had this image of God in his mind. It let him down. And he said, okay, I'm done with this. And he walked away. There are a a lot, you know, I have a lot of close friends, many of who are in this room, who have shared with me your own struggles of reconciling the God of your youth, the God that was handed to you as a child, with your experience of reality as adults. And you're recognizing there is a misalignment here. And so some of you have to go through um, what's called a deconstruction phase, a deconstruct, to break down that picture of God that was given to you from that you've been carrying for the last 25 years or whatever. And you have to find out, okay, that God doesn't add up with who I know or who I experienced God to be or how I experienced life to be and how it works out today as an adult. I've grown up. I've matured. I've I've gained a greater perspective of reality and everything I was handed as a child just doesn't seem to add up. So either I walk away from it or I reconstruct it. And I find something that more, better aligns with the God of Scripture, with my reality. And often what we end up doing is becoming apathetic because it's a lot of work to reconstruct. It's a lot of work to rebuild what we spent most of our life building and assuming. But I think it's a a worthwhile effort. And And I hope that as a community, we can come alongside one another and, and partner in doing that with each other. It's a, it's a worthwhile, probably necessary process for most of us to go through. And it's probably a lifelong process if we concede. And so the answer I found isn't to give up on God. It's not to abandon ship. It's not to say, you know what, it's not worth fighting this. It's not worth pursuing this truth. It's like I said, it's to deconstruct and then reconstruct on something that better aligns with reality. Now let me sit on that statement just for a sec as, as sort of a sidebar. I, and I'm speaking specifically to parents here, or to, to people who want to be parents. Let me ask you, how do you teach your kids about God? How do you teach them about the divine, the ineffable, the, the thing that's beyond our understanding that's completely other This is an important question that we need to ask as parents. And I'm as much in need of uh, asking this question and and considering it as the next person. Because I know it's easier and and comforting to present a a palatable God that sort of is an extension of ourselves to our children. They can wrap their heads around that. That's easy to do. Um, And that was often the approach that was given to us as children. So let me ask you this. How did that work out for you? Now, a lot of you are sitting here this morning because of wrestling with the, that, that image of God that was given to you as a kid. Uh, you were able to wrestle through it. You are able to come to a newer, perhaps um, more uh, life-giving, freedom-based view or an understanding of God. But how many people aren't sitting in the pews this morning because they're like, you know what? That God I was given as a kid doesn't add up, and I don't want anything to do with it. That's a good question. So my challenge is as parents that we need to be humble and we need to be honest with how we present God to our kids. I'm not saying we need to make things complicated for them. We don't need to speak about, you know, super conceptual, lofty ideas about God. But I think we need to, I think we owe it to our kids to be honest and sincere with our own perceptions of God. Does that make sense? I think we're doing them a, a disservice when we don't. And so that's that's my first challenge. But okay, enough of that side note. Um, now as I think about the concepts of God, and I want to kind of wind down here as we get into the second little bit. Um, when I think about the constructs that people have of God, that most all of us have, um, they're the ones that aren't helpful. I, I've kind of, in considering this, boiled it down to two main Sort of gods that I've summarized, and the first one is the vending machine god, and the second one is the bodyguard god. The vending machine god and the bodyguard god. The vending machine god. Well, we look at uh, we we'll, we'll look at Satan pulling this out in Matthew four, and this is the story of uh, Jesus, of course, being tempted. And this is a quick. Quick illustration to, to highlight this. We know that Jesus, up to this point, from any of you who are familiar with this, he'd been fasting for 40 days uh, in the desert, and Satan comes and approaches him with three temptations. Right? We're familiar with this story. First temptation, Satan says, turn the stone into bread, and Jesus throws a scripture at him and says, for it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then during the second temptation, it gets a little bit interesting. It says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And So Jesus, if you throw yourself off this temple, and stand up and take a bow, everyone around you is going to be pretty impressed, and you'll be able to do all sorts of amazing things. And so then Satan throws the scripture at Jesus. He says, well, listen, he will command his angels to come and protect you. In other words, he's taunting Jesus by saying, didn't God promise to take care of you? Can't you bank on that? And in that little statement of temptation, he tempts Jesus to do what we're all, do, what we all, tempt, or we're all tempted to do. And this is where we create a vending machine God. He's saying to Jesus, look, you know how God works, right? If you do this, he is obligated to do that. If you step off this temple and fall, he will rescue you. That's how God works. It's as simple as one, two, three. It's very formulaic, very predictable. Just go ahead and do it, Jesus. Come home. And he's tempting Jesus. Jesus is, or Satan is trying to get Jesus to use God. Use God for your own purposes. This, in my opinion, is the number one way that we have misconstrued God in the West. That we worship God, we follow God, we do all these wonderful things for God so that he will do what we want. Can you relate to that? And when we're doing that, when we turn God into a uh, a means to an end, when we turn him uh, into a tool that can be harnessed to achieve something, well, we're losing sight of who the God is that we worship. And I like this vendor, this metaphor of a vending machine. Hopefully you can track with it too. Uh, you've all seen and all used a vending machine. Um, you know, you want that product in there, so what do you do? You put money in it, you press a code, and the chocolate bar comes out. And this really works with uh, God as well. You want God to answer your prayer. You want God to uh, give you that new job or to, you know, meet that girl or, you know, you want to date that girl or you want your kids to behave and love each other and stop being so uh, frustrating. You want all, whatever it is. And so what do you do? You say, well, I got to say this prayer. And if I uh, go to church on these days, if I read my Bible faithfully, if I help old people across the street, if I do this and I do that, then God, you know, that's your money that you put into the vending machine, then God has to pump out the chocolate bar of my life, whatever that answer of prayer is. For many of us, this is the kind of faith that as kids we are raised with. And some of us, I'm sure, still struggle with that. I still struggle with this, God. I don't know about you, but this is the God that I'm like, still wrestling with because I'm trying to wrap my head around, okay, well, what's the alternative? I, I get that. Um, some of us have walked away from that, God, and, and that's good. This is the God that can be cajoled or manipulated coerce for our purposes. This is the kind of God that says, if you believe enough, you'll receive this, right? That if you pray these three things, or if you say these three things, if you follow this formula perfectly, God will do what you want. He's a machine. A plus B will equal C. If you just quote a verse or you quote this passage, or you memorize that, or you go to church, if you serve in this capacity, whatever it is, God will do it. Now, I am a father. I'm I'm a dad of three kids, and one of my kids is this one, Maddie. And she's four, and she's cute. And I'm not too proud to admit that she has had me wrapped around her finger since I was two years old. Um, Probably even before that. Uh, It did not take her long to figure me out. And any dads with daughters will probably be able to relate, but she wasn't even two years old when she was able to bend me to her will. How did she do it? Well, it's a sophisticated process. It really is. She would, and she's gotten, I mean, in the second half of her life, she's really perfected this. Um, If she wants, let's say, uh, an iPad show, she wants to watch a show on the iPad, five minutes before that, she'll come up to me and She'll start doting on me. Da- Daddy, I just want to snuggle. Aw, Okay. Let's snuggle. Or, Daddy, I love you. Well, where did what? What prompted that? Nothing. I just love you. Oh. Thanks, Maddie. I love you too. And you know what? I, she's not so good that I'm not. I don't even t- anticipate it. I know. I know the game, Maddie. I I'm fine. But you know what? I just keep my mouth shut because I really like it. I know she's got ulterior motives. I don't even care. As as her father, I'm just like, you know what? I'm totally down with you doting on me and and giving me all this praise and and just loving me. That's okay. Um, But call it whatever you want. That's manipulation, isn't it? That sweet little girl knows how to manipulate her dad. God, our Heavenly Father, He's not so easily manipulated at least not in my experience. And it's not because he doesn't love us. In fact, I'd say it's the opposite of that. He loves us so much, and he has the unique advantage of being able to see every possible outcome, whether positive or negative, of the decisions in our lives and the things that come into our lives. And so he's not motivated by whether we do this to get that. That's not what's going to get God to work. And... Uh, Jesus responds to Satan in that request. He says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. A few few days ago, I was running, and I was listening to a sermon from Andy Stanley, who's pastor you should all look at. We've talked about him before. Um, And he's referring to this passage. He's talking about this idea of making God into different images and, and, and constructs that align with our own wants and desires. He says something that was so profound. It just, this picture he pointed out. um, He says, This, he says, The point is if you are a Christian, the moment you begin trying to manipulate God, listen to this, the moment you begin trying to look for a magic formula, the moment you begin to think, if I do these three things consistently, God has to do something for me, at that moment, you are no longer practicing Christianity. At that moment, you're practicing magic. Your religion has become superstition. At that moment, you're practicing magic, and your religion has become superstition. I was on Golf Links Road turning on to Central when I heard that, and I stopped right there. and I was like, whoa, that struck a chord. That was a profound statement, a profound understanding of looking at this like are practicing magic? You know when you say abracadabra, the hat the rabbit comes out of the hat, right? But only if you say abracadabra. It's formulaic. Our religion becomes superstition. Is your religion superstitious? I've been going through The Office on Netflix lately. And uh, over the past month or so, it made me think of this Michael Scott thing. Those who know The Office, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Are you a little stitious in your religion, in your faith, in your relationship with God? Is it a little stitious? How many times have you been in a situation where you need something? A new job, you know, to do well on a test, or uh, a tough conversation has to go well. You need, you need God to come through for you in some way, shape, or form. And so you reason that if you pray about it, He'll do it. Not because you're compelled to pray necessarily, um, but because secretly in the back of your head, you're thinking, God will be impressed with me if I say this prayer, and that, then He'll do what I need Him to do. Or, uh, you, you know, you want a job promotion, you want your, son, your adult son to come home and visit, whatever, whatever it might be, and you say, you know what, maybe next week I'm going to go to church. That'll get God happy with me. And then I can ask him to do this or that. That's superstitious. I wear this shirt when I speak because I'm a little bit superstitious. I don't know why. I always wear this shirt. It's my preaching shirt. And I know it's stupid, And I know there's no like correlation with anything, but I'm just like, no, i got to wear that shirt. It's like a good luck charm. We all are superstitious to some degree in the different areas of our life, but are we superstitious in our faith? Do we live a magic faith? This, my friends, is the vending machine God. And Jesus says to those gathered around him, when you think of God, when you picture God in your head, Don't look at someone who can be bribed or manipulated or cajoled into doing what you want. From now on, think of God as a perfect, loving, heavenly Father who already knows everything you need. He already knows everything you need. Now, before I move on to uh, the bodyguard God, I I feel like I need to provide what I want to call an empathetic disclaimer. (laughs) An empathetic disclaimer is... uh, in other words, it means, I get it. I get it if this is the, for, the God that is formed in your minds. And there are plenty of reasons to arrive at this construct of God. There are lots of good reasons, including particularly reading of Scripture that can lead us toward this as well. like Verses like this. Uh, Matthew chapter seven: Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I um, these kind of passages are pretty clear. Like, well, supposed God's going to give us what we want if we ask him, right? Pretty straightforward. So, how how can you can come to the conclusion that God at least a little bit, doesn't work like the vending machine God. And again, I don't want to open a can of worms with this. I don't want to uh, start a conversation that will just completely envelope the rest of this, this message this morning. But I w- want to just add this little caveat to this kind of reading of Scripture that the heart of the matter on this is the heart. The heart of the matter of this is the heart. It's, it's not wrong to ask things from God. In fact, Scripture tells us all over the place to do that. I'm not saying that that's bad at all. Um, but where we go off, though, is the primary motivation we have to follow Jesus, to follow the Father. Do we follow the triune God because we, so that we can get our way? Do we follow the triune God so that we can get ahead, so we can finish first? If this is why we are following God, if this is why what we've committed to, then these kind of passages have nothing to say to us. They're they're not speaking to us. There's a whole rest of the New Testament that teaches us an entirely different ethic that starts and finishes with a selfless disposition towards others, to a self-giving, sacrificial disposition toward others. Do you agree with that? And until we begin there, these kind of passages, we're going to read selfishly all the time. They just won't resonate. They won't land as they were intended to land with us. And so that's, for the sake of time, and just because this could be a bit of a hairy topic, we're going to leave it there, and we're going to move on to the next one. Is that okay? We can talk about this stuff down the road as well. Now, the second one is the bodyguard God. bodyguard God is the idea that God's primary desire or intention is to protect us from suffering. And you say, wait, what? You mean he's, that's not what he's about? I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I, I see him that way too sometimes. But he's not. Um... And this is a dangerous construct. It's dangerous because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of God. And it works really, really well at bringing us comfort and solace. And it works really, really well at getting people to come into churches when you present to them a God who's all about their safety and their, concern and, and their well-being. If God is about that primarily, people are, appeal- people are attracted to that. It fills pews up. And you're probably familiar with this God because you were raised with it. Maybe you hold on to a little bit about it today. Uh, it no doubt is the kind of God that is presented to us by the culture at large. Many of us in our churches present this kind of God to us. It's not a real God. It's not who God is. A bodyguard's job is to protect us from bad situations, like keep us from harm. Amen? That's what a bodyguard does. It steers us clear of danger. It keeps bad guys away from us. It makes sure that we are safe and that we are comfortable and that we are okay in every circumstance. Do you think that's who God is? And why do I know this is just a construct? Why do I know this is a misguided construct? Because I don't even know this, but people suffer every day. Like good people Like people that we love, people that have believed the right things, have had a strong faith, people who have done well, they still experience calamity. So this bodyguard God, based on my experience of reality, can't be who God is. Amen? It's not to say God doesn't ever step in or fix situations, but the difference is this is not who God primarily is. He is not dare I say, primarily interested in our health and safety and well-being. That's not what God is all about. And maybe that rubs you the wrong way, that maybe that creates some dissonance in your head. That's because you've been fed a picture of God most of your Christian life that says the exact opposite. That's a challenge. And I also know that this is presented in Scripture as well, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we see very clearly in Scripture you know, that this is not who God is. If you look at the lives of the disciples, if you are looking for a mold to follow in terms of uh, being a follower of Jesus in order to avoid pain and suffering, I would not look to the lives of the disciples or pretty much anyone in the New Testament. They all experience terrible, painful, uncomfortable lives as a result, not of believing the wrong things, but of believing the right things, of following Jesus, and following King Jesus. And in first century Palestine, if you gave your allegiance to Jesus, this is the fate that waited for you. Suffering, all sorts of that. We looked at Jesus. I mean, if you think this is the bodyguard God, don't look... To Jesus in his life, he didn't end up too well either. I don't know if you know that story. It's kind of the epicenter of our faith, but he died on a cross in a pretty terrible way. So if you think God is going to live and protect us and all that, then probably don't look at Jesus as your example. And it was like this for the first 300 years of the church as well. Christians persecuted, killed for following Jesus, giving their allegiance to this king. Yet today, if our prayer life or our theologies are any reflection of the reality, God would appear to be most interested in our safety and in our well-being and in preserving us. So when did that change? And again, as parents, this is something that we have to keep in mind with how we present God to our kids. Do we pit? Paint a picture of God as always caring, or sorry, not as always caring, but it's always protecting and always making sure that we're safe and secure. Is that the picture of God that we're giving to our kids? Because they're going to be sorely disappointed later on in life when they realize that people suffer every single day. How. Have we misconstrued the scriptures so much? How do we get from, if any man wants to follow me, he must take up his cross. He must deny himself. He must be willing to lay down his life and suffer for me. How do we get from that to follow Jesus and he's going to keep you safe and healthy and happy the whole time? Somewhere along the line, we introduce bodyguard God into our theology, into our culture. And it has done... tons of damage. I almost want to say irreparable damage, but God can repair anything. You know, I, I actually was, as I was prepping this message, I was about three quarters of the way in when I realized, like, wait a sec, I've actually given this message before at grassroots. I don't know if some of you are like, this is deja vu. I've actually spoken about constructs of God, and the, the thing that kind of tipped me off, because this thought entered my head, I remember this uh, line from Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know who it was. If it was Peter or Lucy, you guys familiar with *Chronicle of Narnia*? All of us are. Um, there's a conversation taking place between uh, Mr. Beaver and the children. And again, I don't know which one. And I think it was Lucy, and she says about Aslan. Aslan is the the figure of Christ in this story, and he's sort of aloof, he's distant, he's not introduced yet. They don't know who he is, and so they're wondering. She's wondering: Is Aslan safe? Is Aslan safe? Is Jesus safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Key difference between the bodyguard God and the God of Scripture is that the God of Scripture isn't safe. He's not primarily interested in our safety, but he's good. You can trust that. And just like the vending machine, God, depending on how you read Scripture, there are a lot of passages of Scripture that would seem to suggest the, body, the bodyguard construct of God is justified. All through the Psalms, we read of David proclaiming God as his refuge. He is the protector. He's like a hen putting his wings over us to protect us and keep us safe. We see even Jesus talking about God, um, as uh, this father who even though he'll... You know, if he's willing to protect the, the flowers and the, the, the birds, how much more is he going to keep us safe, protect us? That's a loose paraphrase, but you get the gist of it. So on the one hand, we understand how this particular image of God can be, came to be so prominent in our minds. Yet, we've already seen how following Christ in the New Testament doesn't lead to safety and comfort, at least not for those in the New Testament or in the first 300 years or throughout a lot of history. Um, and I need to maybe just provide a quote. There's not a sermon from Steve if he doesn't provide a quote from Steve. This is what I would say. I would say the dominant trajectory of how the Bible portrays God as a protector is not intended to be synonymous with making us comfortable and safe, but rather is an intention of ensuring that we are loved and that the best for us may include and in fact likely will include suffering and even laying down our lives. That is profound. He's always full of wisdom, that one. So that's that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to just leave that up there. And next week, we're going to talk about this in greater depth. I'm going to leave that here for now. Um, I want to wrap up and close. I I recently listened to a podcast uh, that explained that our ability to understand and comprehend God is like using a single wave to describe the entirety of the ocean. Using a single wave to describe the entirety of the ocean—is it wrong? Well, not necessarily. It's part of the ocean. The ocean's made of waves. It captures a bit of it, but can it grasp the breadth and the depth and and the grandeur of the uh, and the sheer awesomeness of the ocean? Not even close. If you've stood on the shore of the Pacific Ocean or looked out in the middle of a boat and all you've seen is blue all around you, you can perhaps better appreciate just how massive and how beyond words the ocean is and how woefully inadequate the description of a wave in order to capture the ocean truly is. Now, we've got access to a wave, one wave, of an infinitely larger body of water with no start or finish that's beyond our comprehension. Are we going to get it wrong? Yeah. (laughs) We'll never grasp it in its entirety. We can't contain it. But can we get closer to understanding and have a clear picture of who God is? Can we know Him truly? And I believe we can... And I believe the answer starts with J, and it rhymes with sneezes. And we're going to look at that next week. So you've got to come back. Everyone's okay with it? Okay, it's Jesus. All right, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Everyone's like, who is it? Um, Quick summary this morning. We all have constructs of God. We all have images of his character and his attributes in our head. You can't escape that. Just accept it. Second thing, a bad construct is going to lead to destruction. We all know people who have uh, misconstrued, misguided ideas of who God is, and we've seen the consequences in their own lives. I'm sure all of us can name someone, can tell the story. Maybe our own stories are a testimony to that. Right? So it's important that if you're going to have a construct of God, do you get it right? or at least partially. You work toward getting it right. Then we looked at two types of gods that we can construct. And I would say that these are the two main ones that most all of us at some point or another form in our heads, and they need to be rejected. And if this is your understanding of who God is, then I'm going to encourage you, deny that God. Because that's not who, Jesus, or who God is as revealed through Jesus. First is the vending machine God. Do this so that God does that. The second is the bodyguard God. God's primary interest is in keeping us safe, just like a bodyguard. That's not who God is. And I think it's time we get rid of those ideas, which could be a lifelong pursuit. I get it. So, we need a communion, by the way. Is anyone able to do that? As we close this morning, my challenge for us is to reflect on how the pictures of God that we have in our mind affect our relationship with God, and consequently our relationships with one another. Maybe the most beautiful and amazing thing about this whole human-to-divine relationship, the most amazing human-to-divine relationship, and again, we'll explore this next week, so I would love it if you could come back and, and hear this. Uh, if you can't, then join us on Facebook or catch the podcast. But the most beautiful thing is that there is is within the Christian faith a wonderfully clear picture of what God is actually like. And we can get a pretty dang good idea of his character based on who Jesus was. And although we're never fully going to arrive at a a picture of God that fully captures his essence, we're promised that we'll have enough to go on based on who Jesus is if we just follow him. We'll have enough to go on to follow God and to understand God more clearly. I want to close with this verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, For now we see through a glass darkly. I mean, this is the classic verse that need, that we need to think about. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Isn't that going to be hopeful? Isn't that, doesn't that give you hope? That all the ideas we have running around in our head, all the conversations we have about the divine with one another. One day, we will see clearly exactly who He is revealed to us directly. We get to experience that someday, and that that gives me hope. That fills me up. And I, I don't think we can't start to see clearly now. I think we can. So let's um, turn to communion, which is a is a perfect illustration of comprehending who Jesus is who God has revealed through Jesus uh, this sacrifice given to us by the father of his son for the sake of our healing our redemption and every week we come gather around the table we take a piece of bread his body broken for us we dip it in the wine his blood poured out for us and we say thank you for revealing yourself to us for bringing us healing for helping us move toward a closer, more true understanding of who you are. And that is just so beautifully captured at the cross, the selfless God who gave himself. So this morning, I invite you to the table. All are welcome.